1: Welcome, everyone, to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. My name is Ben Smith, joining me in co co-host, hosting today's episode, the Maine Health to My Northern Light Health, Curtis Wister. How are you doing today, Curtis? I'm doing well, Ben. How are you? I'm doing well. Um, we've, um, we're have we episode, I think, 56 at this point. Yeah. So we're getting our late 50s, right? So, you know, we're, we're a show about aging. And aging with grace. And we're, we're doing that pretty well ourselves. So we're, we're pretty proud That's of everything. Right. How things are going with our show. We one topic we wanted to touch on uh, that we've touched on here and there uh, within our podcast has been the the fear that we hear our clients have about cognitive decline. Mm-hmm. That's something where you know again I think we're all concerned about that, and especially as we age. And personally, uh, seeing my grandmother go through an extended a rapid decline into dementia was extremely impactful on our family. And my grandfather lived another 10 plus years beyond my grandmother, living every day worrying that he was going to start uh, to experience his own rapid decline towards dementia. I think it's something almost everyone worries about as we age, but you know, maybe not only for ourselves, but for the our spouse or mm. a partner, or some other connection too. So recently, our awesome connections at Vanguard, uh, Kelly and Alexandra Krut, shared with us a new Vanguard white paper that came out. Yep. Uh, it, it's titled "The Risk of Cognitive Decline: Investors' Perception and Preparation." It really addresses a lot of questions that we hear daily from our clients, and now through you guys, our listeners of the show, I think there's some things in there that if my grandparents had thought about or known of, it really would have made some of this aging transition a lot easier. So we had to put in a request to the author of this paper and
2: voila, we have a guest. <laughs> So today's guest is a senior investment strategist with the Vanguard Investment Strategy Group. The Investment Strategy Group's core responsibility is to conduct empirical research and analysis, delving beyond today's news to uncover and give context to macro and microeconomic trends and events that will shape the financial markets, the economy, and the industry at large. They share their perspective and insights in a variety of formats, From in-depth white papers to topical commentary, Um, our guest's current research interests include retirement income and the distribution phase of retirement, investment sentiment and behavior, financial advice, and global retirement systems. Before her current role in the center, she spent 13 years in marketing research in the financial services industry. She earned a Bachelor's of Arts in Sociology from the University of the Philippines, Los Banos, a Master's of Arts and PhD in Sociology and dem- Demography from the Pennsylvania State University, and was a postdoctoral fellow at the Carolina Population Center. So at this time, please welcome Anna Madamba to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Anna, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Well, thanks for inviting me. I'm happy to be here.
2: And we want to always,
1: we start our show and we, uh, obviously, we, we talked about the the topic today and cognitive decline as we age is something you want to dig in from your from your white paper. But we want to get to know you a little bit, um, just kind of warm up here. And one of the things we want to just hear about is a little bit of, obviously, we have your educational bio that we read, but um, can you just give us a little bit of the background of where you're from and your childhood experience?
3: Sure. I mean, I grew up in the Philippines. It's a college town called Los Banos.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: My parents were both a With the state university. Now, the town also hosts um, international research organizations, so we had quite a sizable expat community as well. You could literally stay in town and go from preschool to getting your PhD. So, growing up, I had classmates in college who were the same classmates I had in preschool, grade school, and high school.
1: That's incredible. That's amazing.
3: Now, I also come from a very large family. um, I'm one of five siblings, but also have close to 100 first cousins. Holy! We, (laughs) We literally have different generations represented when you go from the oldest first cousin to the youngest. So um growing up, family gatherings during the holidays was a logistical production. I <laughs> mean, <that laughs> people, people have to take turns going around the dinner table whose sole purpose was to hold the food because nobody else had space to eat there. Now, I refer to this network of relatives because it's still very active today. Um, we have a private uh, Facebook group composed of all the cousins. And um, we also have annual cousin gatherings in the Philippines. And unfortunately, we haven't had one in the past two years for obvious reasons. Mm. But anyway, I came to the U.S. to attend graduate school at Penn State and part of its international demography training program. My graduate program colleagues come from all over the world, literally. I mean, Africa, Asia, North America, Latin America, Europe. We were like a microcosm of the United Nations. And coincidentally, I mean, some of them actually did work for the UN. Hmm. Um, the diversity, I, I thought that the diversity in um, thought and cultures that I was exposed to in that program was a good supplement to my professional and intellectual growth. And I think that was by design, by the ones who um, designed the training program. So I received my PhD in sociology and demography, and I thought I was headed towards a job in policy. But you know that phrase about what happens when you're making plans.
1: Right, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: I was recruited to join a financial services company as a researcher, and this determined the career trajectory that I am currently in. I stayed in financial services and um, continue to do the research and obviously love it since I stayed <laughs> this long.
2: So you just teed up uh, my next question perfectly. So Good. I want to ask: So, what do you do currently in your professional life? So, if you could just dive into that a little bit, um, I know we kind of read a little bit off there, and then tell us yeah. kind of what do you love about your current role.
3: So, as you said, I was part. I'm, I am part of the investment strategy group at Vanguard, and. Uh, we produce research that informs the company's offerings, um, strategies, methodologies. In a way, we like to describe ourselves as an interdisciplinary think tank. So within this group are various research te- uh, teams. Um, some of them develop models that give recommendations for, say, uh, the optimal asset allocation in a portfolio or the best spending strategy in retirement. Mm-hmm. In other words, they establish how investors should be behaving in order to achieve their preferred outcomes. Now, we know, though, that when it comes to investing and finances, not all investors behave optimally. I lead the investor behavior group within ISG. We conduct research uh, which describes how investors are actually behaving and why. Hmm. The goal is to bridge the behavioral gap between what is and what should be in order to improve investor outcomes.
1: I love that Anna because I think again the research that you're doing and kind of what you're seeing you know from a from a research perspective and where Curtis and I on a on a practice perspective we're seeing it on a very micro basis right so it, it's really interesting to kind of go here's here's somebody that came in with a certain issue or here's what they've been doing and then reading about well here's how their peers are behaving as well and, and decisions that they have made so it helps gives us context which I which I've loved about Again, your group and in, in the research that's being producer because it's just it ties the two things together and we go okay well again not there's a whole range of quote unquote normal that can happen mm-hmm. but to know well here's here's our very common decisions and here's maybe the things that are a little more little extraordinary exceptional and then as you're saying well here's how you know your other group is kind of going well here's where it should be and here's kind of where we think it it needs to go and then us i think as the advisor out there kind of working is is kind of bridging those two things right is exactly. is helping people kind of put those things so Again, I wanted to put from a listener perspective, well, where do we all fit in here together in terms of roles? And, uh, so that's why we're really excited to talk to you today, uh, Anna, because I think that that's going to be a really fascinating conversation from, from the research perspective to here's the anecdotal, what you've read in, in some of the, the survey results, then what we were seeing on a, on a daily basis as well. Mm. But I do have to ask one bio question, and, and this is something where, I'm looking for a straw and a needle and a haystack here, and it probably isn't there. <laughs> but do you have any connections to Maine?
3: Unfortunately, I don't. Um, okay. My brother used to live in Boston, and we would go mm. to Maine uh, to for the day, but I don't think that counts. I, I know think that, that counts.
4: counts. Yeah, yeah, it, you've been here? You've been here? It, yeah. you know, you've wanted, been here. Yeah,
3: I don't know. Well, yeah, I have been there, yeah. but right? But I've been meaning to invest some time to actually come visit and explore Maine. And, well, you know, I intend we're gonna, to do so in the near future. It's part of my bucket list.
1: We'll give you we'll give you the punch list of the things oh, you have you to go. do, I mean, the places you have to go, and the insider perspective on where to try things. We can absolutely help you out with I that. I would
3: appreciate but, that. But yes,
1: you you have a connection to me, and also, well, you have a connection to Curtis and, so and I that's now. That's the is, best part. Is even if you didn't now, you have one. You have so one.
2: There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So Anna, I want to kind of rotate here and really get into the the topic today of of cognitive decline so earlier in our uh, our podcast history on episode 8 uh, we talked about facing and fighting mental illness in retirement with Dr. Cliff singer of Northern Light um, Acadia Hospital so specifically in that show we discussed kind of what's normal decline versus uh, you know severe forms of decline like dementia so your study cites estimates that two of three adults will experience cognitive decline. So I guess I'll start with kind of a foundational question. So how is cognitive decline defined? And then kind of the follow-up is what are typical experiences of kind of mild impairment versus more severe impairment like dementia?
3: Well, thanks. I I listened to that episode with Dr. Singer, and I actually Mm. really enjoyed it. Now, who knew that statement about the um, amyloid plaque and how it's swept away when you sleep? Yeah. That was amazing. But it's it's also a good reminder because I'm a night owl and, you know, I need nice sleep. (laughs) (laughs) But but to your question on the definition of cognitive decline, I mean, I I may need to get technical on you a bit. Um, That's okay. Yeah. In the research I cited, the cognitive decline was defined based on answers to a cognitive ability test. And some of the test items included exercises on immediate recall. I would give you a list of maybe five items. Can you uh, name it back in the same order or having them count backwards? Those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. So in the test that they had, um, you could get a maximum of 27 points. So you have a possible score of 0 to 27. And within that range, they have thresholds wherein they define the lower end of the scores to be indicative of dementia. Somewhere in the middle would be cognitive impairment without dementia. And then at the top range of the um, range would be um, no cognitive impairment. So that would be how they would have defined um, cognitive decline, meaning that the two bottom categories in, in that study that I cited. Mm-hmm. Now, in general... Mild cognitive impairment reflects some um, change in this cognitive ability, but for the most part, individuals are still able to do what we call your ADLs or activities of daily living. They say, like a shortcut, they say that the early manifestations are in the realms of money, medicine, driving, and technology. Mm. Um, Not managing finances well, forgetting to take your medications, getting into traffic accidents, it's also harder to learn new things, such as new technology. And of course, you know, um, they may be susceptible um, to fraud at this stage as well. Sure. Now, we know that the risk of dementia is actually declining, but it is still prevalent because there are more um, people living into older ages.
2: Sure. Yeah. Okay.
3: Now, in our research, we surveyed investors and provided a definition of cognitive decline borrowed from the Health and Retirement Survey, which is the national survey. And that definition included a lot of the um, symptoms that I had just um, enumerated or mentioned. And having provided them with that definition, um, we asked them, What do they think is their chance that they are going to have cognitive decline based on that definition? And we call this their perceived risk of cognitive decline. So they give us a a percentage chance or the probability that they think they're going to experience those kinds of symptoms.
1: So your your paper was kind of around, again, the research on... Kind of defining it, and then kind of serving investors out there about uh, again their their perceived risk and the, their behaviors towards that perceived risk.
3: That's correct. That's yeah.
1: Correct. So, and I want to ask a question. So, you you've kind of brought up the this kind of this measurement tool, and it, again, an experientially, cognitive decline is a tricky thing because it, it, you know, from either from people we know or clients is sometimes they, they, there's the test. And they know there's the test coming up, right? So they can sometimes rise to the occasion, right? And they, 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 mm-hmm. they, sometimes their mental faculties are assessed, and all of a sudden it's like it, again, certain times dayers are, are, are better than others. Sometimes they know that, but also is maybe decline might not be a straight line either, right? Is it might plateau sure. or so? But so I guess my question is: so in terms of the test. Is it generally where you're seeing like, hey, um, somebody with no cognitive decline that you're generally moving down that ladder over time that there's this test and there's, again, doesn't mean that you go all the way to like dementia impairment, but so is it, can you just describe how I guess, from a testing perspective, how people move down the that ladder or that testing uh, result?
3: No, I think you touched on it. And that, that paper that I had cited, um, that's essentially what they were doing, that they were checking transitions from one state to the other. And I I would um, reiterate the states, you know, it's a state where there's no decline, a state where there's mild decline, and then a, a more serious state of dementia. And when they were looking at that transitions, to you, to your point, you know, some of them go from none to all the way to dementia. I mean, others... Mm-hmm. Go from non to mild, or from mild to dementia, but it doesn't necessarily always happen that they have to go all the way. And for you know proportion of that population, there are those who stay in NCI or no cognitive impairment. So 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 you're correct that you know um, it can plateau. um, You know it it it, people can beat the test, so to speak. Mm -hmm. But I don't think even if those things um, happen, I don't think it nullifies the need to plan and have conversations with your family. So you, don't, you don't need to go all the way to dementia for this to um, be necessary to happen, right? And I Absolutely. think that's the point that I was making in the paper, was that you know even with um, mild impairment, you see impact on uh, uh, finances. So, um, but the thing with cognitive decline, I, I wanted to emphasize though, is that there is a risk. And like any other thing with uncertainty, you try to plan so that you could mitigate that risk.
2: Mm, I like that. So many of our financial planning conversations, you know, that Ben and I and our, our colleague Abby are having, um, we talk about the intersection of wealth and estate plans and many times we discuss the risk of cognitive decline in the context of our clients' current health status and, you know, family history. So, I want to ask kind of how do you see, or how are investors perceiving their risk of cognitive decline? And kind of a follow-up there is how can, you know, anyone listening to this or our clients, you know, improve their own assessment of cognitive decline risk? And I think you were just kind of teed that one up for me. So that was good. Sure.
3: Sure. I mean, the perceived risk, the most investors that we surveyed, actually aligned more with the serious form of cognitive decline or dementia. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, it could be because, This is the stage where the manifestation is more tangible or visual. That's why that's what they um, connote when they um, think about cognitive decline. But that basically means that the milder forms of decline tend to go either unnoticed or dismissed. Mm. So research has shown that even mild cognitive decline, as I had mentioned, could have financial consequences. So for example, you repeatedly forget to pay your bills and this gets a hit to your credits in your credit score, right? Mm-hmm. Or you forget to take the required minimum distributions from your IRA and end up having to pay a penalty, another financial consequence. Now we've heard about somebody writing a check for 100,000 and having it bounce, and when asked about it, they thought they were really trying to cover a $2,000 expense. So Mm. these are ways that we don't even think about, but do happen. And if you ignore or don't catch these kinds of symptoms, you may not make the direct connection that it is about cognitive decline, but it does happen and it does hit your finances.
1: Mm. Well, and, and Anna, I think one thing that, you know, you kind of talked about several areas that you kind of see there. And again, where we talked about money, and then you talked about say driving ability is a big one well kids, I think with driving ability that's that's one that obviously that's hard to hide right It's also you yeah. you get into an accident and you know i i I think of family members and like almost weekly they were running over a curb or they were right yep. there there they were Oops, uh, I put it in reverse when I meant to put it in drive or there's all those kind of things happening. And then, boom, there's a the fender bender. There's but oh, that, it, it, that was an innocent mistake. And but so I think with the money part that it, just from what Curtis and I and our team are seeing, it's just because it's so private. And there's like one person that might be in control in a in a mm-hmm. relationship of that. And they don't want to just come to the forefront and admit that they're losing some of that. So it, it it's it's just so uh, I think pronounced from a from a hidden perspective of you can see it in transportation, you can see it in technology. Oh, here's the new phone, and just pop in the Uber app, and you just uh, create an account and you just do it. That that is a really hard transaction for people too. Yeah. From a money perspective, though, I think that's that's much more difficult to see. And also, when you don't see it, you just assume everything is fine because there's nothing maybe popping up and they do a good job maybe covering tracks or repairing it or over repairing, it, as you just said, kind of from that end. So I think that that's kind of... um... From the anecdotal part, I think that is really important. So I want to ask an, another question. Oh, go ahead, Nana.
3: No, but think think about it. I mean, with, even with the money part, you know, there is um, that aspect of shame as well. I mean, oh, yeah. they might recognize it, but they, they probably won't uh, admit to it if they don't have to. And, and that adds to, you know, kind of sweeping it under the rug mm. and not um, bringing it up in the forefront. Um, you know, with, with cognitive decline, it really is... Uh, a, has a lot to do with emotional, you know, whether it's admitting it to yourself or the shame of admitting it to other people. And in that place into it and that, sort of shapes your response to it as well
1: well and I think all those areas that you pointed out anytime you start giving away um, some of your ability it, it starts chipping away at the concept of your independence right is every sure. time I give something away I'm now more dependent on somebody else to live the life I want and to be and to maintain a level of independence and it feels like a it's a slippery slope because as soon as I give a little bit away then maybe I'm giving it all away eventually and and that's a I think that's the feeling and that's the fear that we're seeing a lot and so that's what I want to get to here in terms of this question of okay, so your paper here about cognitive decline impact your finances that there's there's a conversation in there about hey, when I am starting to lose my uh financial ability right i'm i I'm having struggle here and so I need to then place that trust. In somebody, right, so that I'm going to give them the ability over my money and my finances, mm-hmm. and it might be a shared ability, it might be complete ability. But the question we want to ask here is, because um, this comes up too, is, well, if I'm going to give control to somebody, who do I give control to? And, and who are, so I guess the question is from your research in the survey results you did there, who are we, you're seeing that is likely to be named as an agent in the event of a cognitive decline, either yeah, an event of cognitive decline or a cognitive decline, maybe, uh, maybe moment.
3: Well, what we find is that majority of the investors actually name a child or a child in law, um, as the likely person to be their agent. Mm-hmm. Other relatives such as a sibling are also popular, but, um, to a lesser degree. For the most part, I think it was over, uh, three, three quarters of, um, people we surveyed had named a child. Mm-hmm. But we have to remember that it is more than just naming an agent. I don't know how familiar this situation will, uh, um, sound to you, but when some people say that they've named an agent, they usually mean that they can think of somebody who can step into help if needed. Mm-hmm. But thinking alone does not cut it, right? Yeah. You know, you need to talk to the person that you are thinking to give this responsibility to. So think about answering, you know, the, the following questions. Are they aware that you plan to name them as an agent? And are they willing to take on that role? Remember, um, your favorite child, <laughs> do we have favorites, but your favorite <laughs> child may not be the most financially savvy or you know, comfortable presiding over your financial matters. Another question would be, do they know of your wishes and preferences? Right. Do you update them on any changes to your situation? And, and Ben, I think you, you touched on this. Do, do you trust them to pursue your interests instead mm-hmm. of serving their own? Yeah. Uh, one thing to consider is, are they the same generation as you, meaning, could they potentially have a similar risk of cognitive decline? And if so, you might want to consider having multi-generational agents, plural. An important um, item as well, and this, this I found from the uh, comments in the survey, was, do they live nearby? If not, who will attend to your immediate needs? And is this person in contact with your agent? So you talk about, you know, your clients not wanting to burden their loved ones. Sometimes mm-hmm. it can be the other way around too. You mm-hmm. know, we, you know, we, we, the loved ones, do not want to entertain the thought of such a possibility. But you know, really, we should. I once heard Jason Carl Carlouish. I don't know if you're familiar. I mean, he's an authority on this topic. He's a doctor and researcher at the University of Pennsylvania, and he described the role of an agent as being a cognitive proxy. Mm-hmm. Think about that. You know, I think that's when the enormity of the agent's role really hit me, a cognitive proxy. You know, as an agent, you've got to know what the person with cognitive decline wants and how they would act when faced with a certain situation. So it's more than just being a stand-in, meaning like a physical representative. Yeah. More importantly, you've got to consider that you may not have the liberty to ask them when they think what they think or what they want. If they are already in the advanced stages of dementia, and
1: and so and you I w- need
3: to be able- no, go ahead.
1: Yeah, so I want I want to jump in because a, a couple things here is, you know, I think you mentioned this in your paper is it, it's it's one thing where again from our client perspective, generally at retirement they come to us and you say, all right, do you have an estate plan? No. Do you have financial power of attorney? No. Do I have a medical directive? No. Like or I do, it's like thirty years ago and it was. Please let Johnny and Jenny and my two kids let them go to their aunt and uncle in case something happens to me. That that's generally the the yeah. the level of estate plan that they went through. Oh, yeah. They had the kids and that's what they see. But I, I wanna so one point there is even going to the attorney and saying, hey, Johnny, my son here, is the financial power of attorney for me, and I draft a legal document, and they put it in the safe, or they put it in the safe deposit box. They they just store it away, and they're done, right? That that they're they're done, and that's kind of what they check: did it, accomplished it. But what? what you were saying in your research says you got to extend that even more right is is as you said is kind of assessing it and kind of who makes the most sense but can you talk about that maybe the next uh, level on on top of again the what are people doing versus where should they be and it sounds like the the where they should be that might be where the gap is there right
3: true true so so you you mentioned you know the the people who thought they were done i mean anecdotally with with the survey you know when we started thinking about doing it we were we were concerned that it might be too sensitive a topic to to handle but you know felt strongly that this was an area that investors needed to be um, aware of and so um you know after the survey what was a pleasant surprise was the amount of people who had reached out and provided feedback thanking us for the survey. Now, when does that happen? Um, you, know, you know, essentially what they were saying was recognizing that, you know, we identified areas, especially for those who thought they were done, mm. you know, check the boxes, right? But we identified areas that they either were not aware of, or that they were aware of, but were you know putting it in the back burner, not wanting to deal with it, and so the survey was the nudge that they needed to actually you know bring it up in the surface and actually think about it
1: awesome, so I want to ask the the question then is. Again, we talked about. Again, talked about who in the generally that's going to the kids is kind of the the one that's the agent. We've um, we've actually gone to this topic um, a couple times, and it was led by Dr. Serzaph Geber in one of our episodes. Was this concept of solo aging? Right, is that I don't have kids, so. That's probably not on the table for me to go and reach out to the, that next generation to say, hey, take care of me while I'm aging because I don't have that there. So I, I guess the question – so I, I guess the, what I want to bring up is what Sarah Zeph brought up was this whole concept that you said is this multi-generational investment – In your network, right? So it's, it's friends, but not friends that are older than you and not friends (laughs) that are the same age as you, because more likely you're going to have, you're both going to be, or your, those peers are being going to going through cognitive decline, maybe earlier or uh, later than you. Or, sure. or maybe transition to them and then they go through it. So you got to have gaps in terms of your kind of your network. So investing in that, I so want to bring that up there. But I think if I'm going through this myself, right, then say for any of the listeners out there kind of thinking about this, And I'm thinking about, again, maybe the kids. Maybe I'm thinking about the neighbor. Maybe I'm thinking about my best friend who was a, you know, sorority sister or fraternity brother from college, whoever. How do you think we can kind of assess quality and availability to make the right choice?
3: Well, you know. Like you had said, um, a lot of solo agers, which by the way was a term I wasn't familiar with, and you know I, I totally love it. Mm. Um, but um, you know a lot of the solo agers that we had um, in in the survey essentially were pointing towards family uh, as as possible agents. But to your point, I mean they were mostly siblings. Of the same generation, some had nieces, nephews, what have you. But you know, how, how do, how do they identify? I think I had a quote in the paper, uh, which, which I loved, but broke my heart essentially, you know, was that, you know, if we, I, what did she say? I don't even know whom to name. And how do I even start figuring out who to trust? Because mm-hmm. I don't know who would give the time necessary to, to address the concerns that I would have. So, I mean, I think it was like we had 5% or so of those who did not have um, children mm-hmm. who were in this category. And, and, you know, you could interpret 5% as minimal, but, you know, these are people who actually have no recourse to go. And what, what do they do? Mm. We, we see a lot of um, reliance on, you know, institutions uh, and trustees as well, financial institutions, financial advisors um, as well. But the important thing to do, which makes it more imperative is, um, for solo agers was that, you know, you know, this is a situation you'll be in. It will be harder to find people who will step in ad hoc when you do need it. Mm -hmm. Hence, it's more essential for you to start planning about addressing it. This reminded me of, um, the example of the couple in Dr. Um, gipper's episode who got lucky that their next door neighbors yeah, mm-hmm. agreed yeah. to act as their agent. That's right. I have another example um, that was recent with my family. I have a 92 year old aunt who lived alone, very sharp, but had to be hospitalized. This is not a decline related hospitalization, yet um, the issues are the same. So there was discussion amongst the cousins about how to handle the situation and by default, those who lived within close proximity of her home were, had, were l- relied upon to provide the support. Sure, yeah. So upon leaving the hospital, one cousin took my aunt into her home while she recuperated. Another, who was a physical therapist, attended to her treatment. The rest of us cheered her on as we watched her progress in her physical therapy on video Mm -hmm. across the globe. (laughs) And when she was well enough to go home, a third cousin was checking in on her on a regular basis. But a point I wanted to make was that in both cases, there were people who stepped up. To provide the support, it is hard for solo heirs to leave this up to chance or to luck. Mm -hmm. So the the point really, and the point of the paper is, it's really best to plan. Mm.
2: I like that a lot. So that was a really good conversation about the who, right, in terms of who's going to step in. So I want to rotate to a when scenario. So in our opinion, the when to transfer control over of our affairs is very difficult. So. When do you think someone should transfer control over their affairs? And what kind of did your research find was the impact of a mistime transfer? Like what, uh, like what goes wrong if it, you mistime it there?
3: Yeah. I mean, I agree that it's a very difficult um, question to answer. Right. It's difficult because it's really a very subjective decision. I mean, I have a friend um, whose father managed the household investments and finances, and he was really very meticulous about it very proud of it, too, um, of the work that he's done. He's in his 80s. He's amassed significant wealth um, for both him and his wife, but has remained very frugal. I I would think you see, you know, examples like this in your practice as well. So, I mean, frugal to the extent that their children keep trying to convince them to spend more on themselves. But but really to no avail. Mm -hmm. My friend prepares their taxes every year, so she's aware of their financial position. Now, a few years ago, he missed taking the RMDs from his IRA, and the penalty was hefty. Mm -hmm. So Mm. this was the impetus that convinced him to enroll in an advisory service and start ceding control. Now, my friend, together with the advisor, is now involved in the oversight of their finances. But to answer the question, it's difficult. It's case-by-case basis. I mean, something will spark that realization that you need to cede control. Now, transferring control of your finances is difficult, obviously. We need to realize that to give up control of your finances means that you are exposing yourself to vulnerability And it requires your capacity to trust somebody else with it. Mm -hmm. Now, in our survey, we left that ideal timing to the investor to identify. Now, most of them preferred to wait to transfer their financial control until after the onset of decline, but before experiencing full incapacity. However... Timing the onset of full incapacity is really difficult.
4: Right. Mm. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: Where do you have that crystal ball that you know, tells you when it's going to happen, right? Exactly.
1: And let's so, go six months prior to that, and that's when we'll start.
3: Yeah. There, yeah. yeah. So planning can really help address that. We try to um, attach a value to the ability to control the transfer of once the transfer of these assets at your preferred timing. And we did this in the survey through a series of exercises. Now, what we found was that on average, investors were willing to give up about 14% of their net worth if they would be able to time this transfer properly. I mean, obviously, it's hypothetical. But, you know, if you had the power to control when you would transfer that um, control at a time that was perfect, you know, at the time, when when you if you could tell when that incapac- full incapacity is going to happen, you know people are willing to give up about, in our estimates, about three hundred thousand based on the responses from the survey. Okay, that's the value of the, I guess the well being or peace of mind they would get if they had the ability to predict when the best timing was and do the transfer at that time oh, interesting
1: so then what was the again from a, kind of a this hypothetical perspective? But I I know when some of your research there, Anna was talking about um, this concept of mistiming a transfer. What if we're too late, right? Is what if what because again, like there's early, right? And and Uh I think to your point is early is probably any time prior to full incapacitation in in the in the survey or investor's mind. Then so late then is post incapacitation, right? Is is probably that that's where. All my money's kind of not not transitioned. There's going to be a timing there for somebody to then get educated on what I have, where it is, making sure the financial institutions are properly uh, giving me ability and authority to make decisions on your behalf. All all that takes time, right? So what what were you finding was the kind of the I don't want to use the word penalty of mistiming, but there's a cost to mistiming that transfer to what, what did you find there?
3: Now, no just just a, a bit of correction to uh, what you were saying. Now, early and late is really dependent on what the um, investor identified as their ideal time. Gotcha. So early is an individual be, thing. Yeah. So early yeah. could be before the onset of decline. I mean, my my mother pretty much when she retired. I mean, I, my my sister lives with her, but essentially said, you know, why why should I bother about you know going to the bank and whatever? I mean, she has obviously still control, but a lot of the Transactional aspects of it. I mean, she was happy to you know, pass Good it, it on to <laughs> my sister. And, 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 you know, with, with early transfer, I mean, that essentially means that you either, you know, trust your agent, mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, and you, and you don't really mind having somebody else do, do that work for you. Now, with late, that becomes an issue because again, you cannot, you cannot really predict, um, you know, when, mm-hmm. Full incapacity happens, right. and so when we talk about the value of that missed time transfer, we estimated that based on that hypothetical situation. so if you had say five hundred thousand dollars in wealth and would you essentially choose to Have that transfer at the time that you prefer or at the time later than you had preferred? And, you know, if they say at the time that they prefer, we ask them, how much more do you need to be compensated in order to accept a late transfer? And that delta in the value between what they were given and what they need to be compensated with essentially is the value that they attach to the ability to control when that transfer happens. Gotcha. Okay. Okay.
1: (laughs) Okay. Well, I want I want to ask another question here for you Anna as um you know on our show we've had we've had several estate planning attorneys walk us through the importance of estate plan, you know, wills, power of attorney, medical directives. And and again, we work with uh, I, again, uh, some really great attorneys that that do just wonderful work with with the clients that we share in common and and I know we talked about this a little bit about the research shows all right that the documents are generally in place that people generally have done that in retirement they've really gone through that, and that there is a need for it, and they have kind of kind of approached and created those pieces, but as you said, kind of putting them away in your research shows that task specific duties. Such as who is checking the mail, who's paying the bills, who's pre-arranging my care, and then the guidelines again, specific guidelines for transferring control of finances, right? So, like, all right, when this and the, this, this is uh, these are the timing things, or this is this is what I want to transfer at these certain times those things are are really less common that that really have people have gone that far. So you want to ask about the pre-assigning of these task duties because you kind of use that example of your aunt right is uh-huh. hey here's here's as she's kind of um, you know rehabbing that somebody's doing PT somebody's taking care of the checkbook somebody's kind of helping out and then you get the support team around. so if I'm if If maybe I'm your aunt at that point, maybe before kind of people had stepped up, how would I go about pre assigning these tasks? And how how should how should I structure this so that again I have the documents I have the ability to transition things legally, but again assigning it is different because there's also training involved to that too right is I don't maybe I don't know um, how to log into your bank account or I'm an investor a DIYer and this person's into options trading we've had a client a DIYer that was into options trading and. Mm -hmm. And by the way, there's a cognitive test for options trading as well that can happen. And so now you're going to give this like, here's my investment account and I'm options trading and I got things going on all over the place. It's not just I can say, hey, Johnny, my kid is go ahead and uh, just start playing and learning options on the fly with my my uh, retirement account. So how, how do you think folks should structure this over time?
3: So, you know, I was just going to add to what you were saying. You know, the other thing you hear is that... He- you know, why would I even have to do this task-specific things at this time when you don't know that it's going to happen anyway? So mm. what we find is that um, for for these things, checking them, assigning somebody to check the mail and pay the bills, or prearranging care, a lot of the people in the survey were actually reactionary when this happened, and it usually happens towards you know the latter part of the age range in their in their 80s or so but if we could step back and think about it you know cognitive decline leads to um, loss of autonomy so planning early is important so that you have that sense of control so why wait to be reactionary if there are steps that you could do in order to have a say in you know all all of this 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 task considerations right now um i have this story of a daughter I Read who, some who was an only child, and I think this brings it to light. Um, she was an only child and related that her mother had a terminal illness and had been sick for a really long time. Her father attended to her mother and was the primary caregiver. He was the planner and had her mother involved in evaluating the various care options for when the time comes that he cannot handle caring for her at home. So they ended up agreeing on a care option, and when the time came, the transfer to the nursing home facility was actually seamless. Mm-hmm. Now, at the nursing home, her father continued to dedicate his time to the care of her mother until she passed. But it didn't take long for her father to start showing signs of cognitive decline after her mother passed. And um, once it started, to to uh, the example you cited earlier, I think it was of your grandmother, I mean, it mm-hmm. progressed quite quickly.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, unlike her mother, she did not get the chance to discuss the wishes of her father, and so she was describing the difficulty of having to make decisions without being prepared for it, and she also agonized about not being able to honor his wishes unlike what her father was able to do for her mother and so that's that 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 struck me so you know just having i mean it is reactionary, yes but you know just having these conversations can help people move forward will helping them face up to the need to confront this issue rather than you know put their heads in the sand you know, mm. we, well, you know, we 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 look we, we look at planning as the opportunity not only to express your preferences but the opportunity to revisit to discuss and to revise plans based on updated wishes and changed circumstances so you know that that is the essence of planning. There, there, uh, you might, it might not happen, but it doesn't hurt to mm. have the discussion and have your preferences and your wishes known to to help the agent. Who you know, like that daughter, would feel helpless not knowing what you would have wanted.
1: You know, that's that's a really powerful story, and I, I think. Again, we've from our clients and, and we hear that story as well. And again, they're they're the sandwich generation, right? As they're taking care yeah. of a parent, as they're sometimes taking care of a grandchild, right? Is mm-hmm. that that's sometimes happening? And you're bringing up a really big point because, you know here's here's a a population of people that. You know they're trying to learn on the fly and educate themselves on what needs to happen to take care of somebody. What decisions do I need to be making? What are all the inputs? And and to your point, the ha- probably the hardest level of um, thing to do here, and maybe the highest level of stress they're they're kind of agonizing about is if I knew what you wanted. That would probably make my decision-making ability so much easier, right? Is if I knew that you really didn't want to be, you know, in a double room in an assisted living facility, and that was the thing that you absolutely did not want to have, and it, you really yeah. wanted privacy and more autonomy there. But if if now I you're not able to express to me where you are and what you're thinking and what you're what you'd like and don't like. Now I go, well, I think based on knowing you, what you would like and not like. And, but I'm also trying to figure out the money part. I'm trying to figure out what we can afford. And, and, and then if I do something that I think is against your wishes, now I'm agonizing about that afterwards. And like now Mm. I feel like I, so you feel like you're in a no win situation at times because of of that. So I, I think you, you touched on a very, a very powerful heartstring there about uh, something that, that that this group really, the agents really worry about and struggle with. And it's the whole, I wish I knew, I wish I knew what you would want in this situation. You could actually tell me because that would make my decision. I could rest easier knowing that. Cause I, at the end of the day, they just want them the best for, you know, the person they're taking care of. They love them. They want to, they want to do right by them as, as they did right by you. So, I think that's that's a really important point that you you told there and I thank you for for bringing up that story.
3: Yeah, it's this concept of the cognitive proxy, right? And and mm-hmm. if you're going to be a cognitive proxy but not have access to, you know, how you think, you know, the 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 person wishes or uh, the preferences for maybe uh, areas of care. It's it's hard to it's essentially putting yourself in their place, but really not knowing how they would be addressing these kinds of issues if they could, mm-hmm. and it's it's you know it's it's a heavy weight to be giving to agents, and so I mean back to my point about you know naming agents would be good, getting them involved would be better, mm-hmm. talking to them about your preferences you know would yeah. be uh, uh, even though better, it's better still.
1: But that's yeah. so uncomfortable, Anna. Right? Is to go, hey, when I'm approaching a nursing home, this is the type of stuff that I want to see, or how I envision this going, and this is why maybe I've established a certain money, or I have certain policies, or or whatever. It's still, I, and I, I have family members right now that they they really just have some pretty big hangups, even of death, and they even to oh, do yeah. a will is t- is tough. So mm-hmm. I. I I want to acknowledge that it is really tough to have that conversation and say, "Hey, let's go to Applebee's for dinner as we talk about my, you know, how I'm going to assign you as my agent, and I'd like you to do these things for." Me. Right? It's like as we're sharing a bloomin' onion or something. I know I'm mixing sure. up restaurants there, but <laughs> yes, yeah, so I think that those are those are hard conversations just to raise have have in a in a in a place and in a point that it feels very natural probably it does, it is an a natural thing to be talking about and but i again I, I think it's important to kind of push through that uh lean into the kind of the awkwardness of it cuz i think it will help everybody long term
3: and i think it's a two-way two-way process too i mean the initiation can come from the family members to um initiate the discussion or it could come from the, you know, the, the investor or the client mm-hmm. to initiate those kinds of discussion. I remember early on, you know, when my mother started talking about that, you know, we, would put out the air violin and start, you know, play, playing, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's a, it's a way to, you know, kind of make light of it and not really want to discuss it. But, you know, as, as, you know, You know, she gets older, and it happens more and more. You really need to sit down and you know have that kind of conversation. We we have, we do. Mm -hmm. Um, but but you know, it's a recognition that uh, you know the investor could initiate it, being proactive, and want to have that discussion with the family. The family needs to step up and welcome that discussion. Mm -hmm. Or if the or if excuse me, if the client doesn't want to recognize, you know. Symptoms of decline and the family needs to step in and initiate that discussion. So it really is, you know, a two way.
2: Yeah. Um, And I want to kind of keep going here. Um, So in a previous episode of our show, we had a conversation with Mike DeJoseph um, from Vanguard regarding his co-authored paper, Advisors Alpha, where we basically talked about, um, you know, the value of a financial advisor. So we think your research on co- cognitive decline, you know, intersects really well here obviously as we've been talking about. But so there's enough occasions where someone's talking to to our team and you know they recognize how important the work we're doing is and you know they recognize how valuable the role is, but they're adamant on being a DIY investor. And this kind of ties into your story earlier about the uh, individual who was missing or missed his RMD for the year. So I want to kind of a, another element here. So if if that individual you know had a spouse or it was a couple relationship, um, so obviously the when a person makes a decision to be a DIY investor, they're assuming that they're going to be fully capable to do that, you know, for the entirety of their life. Now, obviously, for reasons we've discussed, where cognitive decline comes in, that may not be the case. But kind of furthermore, again, where it is in that if it's in a couple relationship that duty may be left to you know a spouse or a partner that has never had to handle these finances so i guess kind of the the long-winded question i want to ask you is how do you think diyers should structure the management of their financial assets in the event that they do experience a, you know a decline or, or maybe a rapid decline at that point
3: and in that RMD example that I gave, uh, the the wife was able to step up and assume those responsibilities together, you know, with mm-hmm. with her daughter and the advisor, and that 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 sort of helped mm-hmm. deal deal with that. But you know, preparation for DIY investors is really not going to be too different from what we had just discussed. Sure. However, as a DIY investor, uh, you need to drive the planning instead of having an advisor initiating or guiding you through it. And to do so, you need to be aware of these issues, Mm -hmm. right? Think about those who were thanking us for the the, the survey. You also need to recognize and acknowledge decline when the symptoms start to happen. And there's research that shows that investors who have cognitive decline and who have been active in the stock market tend to suffer more wealth losses because they do not recognize the symptoms of decline. On the other hand, those who acknowledge their decline or have children or family who point it out to them do not suffer similar hits to their wealth. So, you know, awareness and recognition is key. And you bring up this important point about leaving a partner in a vulnerable position if they have not been involved with the finances before. Mm. I remember a study that we did a few years ago that identified the five profiles of advised investors. These are investors who have financial advisors. And one of those profiles were DIY type investors who are very knowledgeable about investing and really consider their advisor as Sort of like investing partners, you know, they vet sort of the investments rather than have the advisor drive or direct those investments. Mm -hmm. But the one um, distinguishing characteristic of this profile of advice investors is that, they hired a financial advisor as support for their spouse or their family in case they predeceased them. And that would be, you know, one way of having to deal with this. In the RMD example, um, that was the way that they dealt with it as well, right? Okay. But that was after the fact. I mean, the, the, this, this profile, um, of investors I was talking about in that study, they were doing it preemptively and engaging with an advisor because they wanted to make sure that if anything happened to them, that their family was going to be, um, yeah. that their family was going to be all right. That's great. So it doesn't differ much in terms of, you know, do you have the documents in place? If you need long-term care, do you have long-term care and you have insurance in place? Have you done, you know, these task-related things around, you know, identifying who will check your mail, who will pay your bills, you know, have you prearranged care, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. transfer of Control, but you know the the key there would be acknowledging that decline could happen and recognizing it if it does happen, and having a plan for if it does happen, how to address it, how to how, how to manage it. Hmm. Um, and I ask so that a would follow-up. be important for them. Yeah,
1: yeah I, I want to ask a follow up question, uh, Anna. There is you you made the, you made the statement that um, that someone an investor that's suffering from cognitive decline can suffer steeper losses than someone that is not can you so obviously you you got research here and i guess the question is how did you kind of spot that and what would be the causes for that So again just cognitive decline in general so what was i, I guess i want to hear just kind of what part of cognitive decline was causing those uh, steeper losses
3: now I need I need to go back to the paper, but in that in, in, in that paper essentially what, what happened was they they had a a sample of people I believe who were identified as having cognitive decline. But they identified the people who and they were looking at wealth mm-hmm. as, as the outcome, right? Yep. And they um identified that the people who suffered um who had um less wealth were those who were actively managing their finances and either ignoring the decline or did not recognize the decline. They interpreted it as quote unquote overconfidence that, you know, I've always been in control. I mean, they are active, they are engaged. I've always been in control. I don't want to recognize this this, uh, emerging theme of lacking control. And so they keep, they keep at investing, and obviously those decisions start becoming less optimal, right? As you mm-hmm. as you go through decline, and that was the reason for the loss in the wealth. It's not like I mean, it's essentially because the decision making was was getting poorer. Yeah. That's gotcha. why their investments were not giving back as much, and their wealth was being hit. But they did find that among those who had um, ident- were identified as suffering. Decline. Those who recognized it, or those whose family were around to point it out for them, the 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 wealth outcome was actually um, not not hit by by, by that decline. So their their conclusion was this importance of what they call agency, and so we're back to you know, identifying an agent. Yeah. You had somebody who could point this out for you, and you know you acknowledge it and make the necessary plan around it, then the hits to your finances would not be as much.
4: Yeah.
1: I, I want to tell a quick story about that, Anna, because I think you yeah. brought up a, a really kind of key point uh, during the financial crisis. So 2007, 2009, um, I inherited a client at that point. Uh, someone had come from another advisor and come over. And the the, the gentleman that was in charge of the 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 wealth of the portfolio there, so he so he and his uh, spouse together were had their wealth, and he was making the shots well again to your point about cognitive decline, he kept on making more and more concentrated bets into uh, what he knew and what he knew in maine there 's a lot of so the publicly traded stocks in Maine generally were financial services companies there were banks. Mm-hmm. Right. So that's what he knew. And he continued to take more and more concentrated bets over the 2000s into that. So when it came to the the blow of the financial crisis, of course, ground zero of a lot of the issues in, in equities were right in banks and financial services companies. So he had experienced, I think, like 60 or 70 percent decline uh, over that, that 18 months just because of over concentrations in certain securities that went from $40 a share to $2 a share, right? And and because of that, so the decision-making ability, and I know that's just one example, and I'm not trying to paint everybody with that brush, but I, I just seeing that and saying that, hey, he was continuing to buy more and more things. And he wasn't really worried about concentrating his his risk because, hey, that bank has already always been there and they've been in yeah, business for exactly. hundreds of years and it's not a big deal. And I've always made money in banks and I like dividends and all those things were part of his process. But I think his, his process got uh, more and uh, or less and less thought through and he was less maybe in tune to what was happening in those organizations as he was mm-hmm. declining himself and maybe has less less ability to really research what he was doing, why he was doing it, and how he was invested. So I think that was a really kind of important point there. And as um, kind of some of those uh, kind of lead into that, your maybe your capability continue to decline, and that can lead to some some some
2: really um,
1: big costly errors. So I, I think that's a really key yeah. point.
4: Yeah.
2: So, Anna, we have kind of reached the end of our conversation here. Already. We do have have one last question (laughs) for you that's not um, directly related to cognitive decline. So, obviously, the name of our show is the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Um, So, we love to ask all of our guests, what is your personal definition of retirement success or how do you think you will achieve a successful retirement?
4: Hmm.
3: I think for me, a successful retirement would be one where uh, I'm in relatively good health. I'm socially engaged and uh, actively engaged in things that bring me joy or a sense of purpose. Mm-hmm. So uh, I envision this will involve enjoying time with my family and with my friends. Um And I expect that, you know, at any time during this phase, there will be traveling there will be learning and there will be serving and and, and, you know essentially that would be you know what would give meaning to Mm -hmm. living this phase of my life and that would be success
4: for me that's awesome
1: well, Anna, thank you so much for coming on our show. It's such a privilege to have you and uh, to talk about your research. Again, we're going to share that paper with uh, with our listeners out there. We'll, we'll put it in the show notes uh, so that, it, again, it's very worthwhile for everybody. I think everybody should uh, just take a few minutes and read that. We'll be handing that out to our client base too because I think this is an important thing to just start the conversation. And, and uh, what I love about the effort that you have done here Here, Anna is is you. You kind of brought the academic side to it, and it's yes, the anecdotal is important. Yes, the what it should be is important, but to know where we are today is probably the most critical thing. So, I think your surveys have been uh, really important here, and to kind of bridge those three things together. So, we really thank you for all the work you're doing at Vanguard. It's really instrumental to the work that we do here at Guidance Point, and appreciate you coming on our show today.
3: Well, thanks for having me. It was fun. Thanks a lot.
1: Take care. Okay. Episode 56, Cognitive Mm -hmm. Decline and the Impact on Your Finances with Anna Madamba. So really good to have Anna on. Again, we we are big Vanguard fans. Mm -hmm. And um, again, big big shout out to uh, Kelly Orr and Alex uh, Crute for kind of making us aware of this uh, new white paper that had come out about cognitive decline. And again, something where again, from a fear perspective, we see from our client base a lot is, yep. you know, I think there's there's always this, where am I And uh, in the realm of co- brain health? And, you know, so mental health is kind of a big, I think, big, big, big thing with um, with a retiree and aging population. Mm. So always want to kind of take a little bit of like something that we really enjoyed of today's show. So Curtis, why don't you lead us off with uh, something that you took away for from our conversation with Anna today?
2: Yeah, you know, a piece that really stuck out to me was was actually towards the end of the conversation um i think it came up when we were talking about the diy investors um but it kind of tied into the the whole conversation in the sense that it the result was how important it is to to recognize the risk and have a plan but the the specific piece that that caught me was she talked about investors and you know and the impact on their overall wealth And for those that, um, you know, recognize cognitive decline or accept that they may be experiencing it or that there's a risk and they have a plan in place, their overall wealth doesn't take too much of a hit from that. Whereas the people who I think she phrased it as overconfidence or the people who just don't don't see it, whether it's innocent or they're trying to they don't want to admit it. And they try to kind of keep going. I think she she laid out some examples where they can suffer some steep losses in their their overall wealth. So so again, I know that was kind of the the finance piece, but overall, I mean, she it applied everywhere in this conversation of just how important it is to have these plans in place and and to kind of revisit them and make sure they're still going to work and it's still what you want and it still works for the agent. So just overall, I, I think it was a great conversation and and just again highlighted how important it is to to be aware of the risks here.
1: Yeah. And I, I think the risk, right. Is that, you know, what you're saying is there's a risk that could happen. doesn't mean that it will happen and doesn't mean that um, it could, you could actually make a mistake and end up the opposite too. Right. Is it uh, you accidentally got concentrated in a certain position and actually worked out by accident things, you know, it could be both ways. Right. But I think the point here is knowing some of the downside issues that could happen. And I think the larger point of that is, you know, it, a financial advisor might not be only for somebody that's just saying, Hey, I, I really want to just delegate a lot of this, and I just want to do this uh, at, at retirement or sometime in my life or my career. It's like, it could be that you've not, really not needed a financial advisor. You've been mm-hmm. able to do this yourself for your whole life. It might be you really just need to uh, outsource this because your agents that you're selecting, your kids or friends or family members or neighbors, whoever, are not comfortable doing that for you. Right. Mm -hmm. And they they don't have the expertise. And it would make more sense to go hire someone to do that at that point. It might be a two year transaction. It might be a three year. It might be 10 years. But maybe you didn't need it for 80 years. Maybe you didn't need it for 30 years. So that I think that's just a point to to make there is that that service is available when you want to kind of transition that over. So, again, it yeah. doesn't have to be with us. We just want yeah. to make the point about kind of that being a important thing to consider uh, where maybe you've not considered that previously. Sure. I'll also um, add that one thing that I I really liked about our conversation today was was the talk about when. When should I transition uh, some of these affairs? And again, not only just the the power of attorney and that people are listed, Mm. but also the tasks and that that there's more of these things that maybe aren't in the legal document of – You know, I kind of almost think about the John deal, you know, who's uh, where, where am I going to eat my ice cream cone? Who's going to change my light bulb? And, you know, kind of those questions are very similar to what I think Anna was bringing up about when, Mm -hmm. um, and, and this whole kind of that of, Hey, you know, for my mail, I just need help there. Maybe I have mobility issues. And then, you know, as we're approaching here, end of December and we're in Maine and yeah. what's going to happen is we're going to have ice all through our <laughs> yeah. driveways and snow and, you know, in the middle of Uh, January and it's negative 10 out and we have a frozen driveway and I'm 88 years old and I decide I gotta go get that mail. As soon as that mail truck comes to my mailbox, right? That might be the, not the best decision for your long-term independence and longevity. So again, things like that, I think are important to kind of think about and maybe you're just slowly transitioning certain tasks over time and might not be related to cognitive decline. Maybe it's just making sure that, uh, Your support team is in place and you're just investing in that um, uh, as you age as well. So again, really important point there. We want to thank you for listening. in. as we said, uh, you can find actually Anna's white paper. We're going to put on our blog. Yep. So you can go to blogguidancepointllccom backslash five, six for episode 56. Yep. You can go there and you'll have the link to uh, Anna's white paper. Again, I, I we recommend everyone to give that a read. It's a really awesome um, resource for you. And again, good academic background. So you'll find that there. Thank you again to Anna for coming on. Um, we are very excited about our next episode too on episode 57. Yep, We're going to have a talking in the mental health here uh, with Coach P, uh, Joanne Palumbo-McCauley, Macaulay, is the was the head coach of women's basketball at university of Maine, who went on to be the same position at Michigan state and Duke. So she's going yep. to talk about mental health uh, specifically and how, um, she was, uh, diagnosed with bipolar disorder while a head coach at UMaine and how, how she's uh, lived with that and, and built her own team. We're going to learn some lessons about that. So, uh, stay tuned for that. That's going to be our kickoff to 2022. Yep. Really appreciate you tuning in and we'll catch you next time. <laughs>
0: Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisor's mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session. Our advisors will have a conversation with you about your goals, your frustrations, and your problems. Make sure you check out Guidance Point Advisors on our blog, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can always check out more episodes of this podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And of course, keep on finding your retirement success.